0: Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. morning we're starting a new series in the Gospel of John. And so to kind of give you uh, an idea of where we're going, kind of a roadmap for this, uh, we're going to be in John for Good part of the next year, Um, but we'll have a couple of breaks along the way. We always stop around Christmas time and do an Advent series and look more specifically at the coming of Jesus. That's one of my favorite parts of the year. We we do a big lessons and carol service, which we'll have some more information about in the coming weeks. Uh, But we're going to be spending a lot of time in John. And so if you're not familiar uh, with the Bible or you're not familiar with the church, or if you're just new to city on a hill, this is a really good time for you to jump in because John answers some major questions about what Christians believe believe about what everything we do is all about. And so if you look and if you have a Bible in front of you and you're looking at John chapter 1, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we would love to give you one. We should have some in the back at our Connect table. So if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to gift you one today. Um, you'll notice at the top it says "The Gospel according to John." Now if you're unfamiliar with Christianity or the church or the Bible, that word gospel" may be a strange word for you, uh, but the word does mean good news or story. And so it's a good story, a good news story telling us about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And if you look at the beginning of the New Testament, you notice that there are four gospels. There are four narrative accounts of the life of Jesus. And, uh, you know, that seems like a little bit of overkill, doesn't it? It seems like you've got four stories about the same person, a lot of overlap in the same stories. You know, why do we need all that? It's kind of like, why do we need another Batman reboot? And the reason is, is because we do, they're all awesome in their own way. Um, They're they're all important. They all play a part. And uh, there's a few reasons that having four of these is important. Number one is it provides a legal witness. Uh, If you look at the the ancient world, the Jewish world uh, in Israel, you needed at least two to three eyewitnesses to corroborate an account. So if you were in court, you would have two to three people who would come and they would say, yes, we saw this happen. So that's what we need from this. And in the Bible, we have four eyewitness accounts. Four eyewitness stories of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we see the two of them come directly from disciples. We see Matthew, who was a tax collector that Jesus rescued and saved. And we see John, who wrote this John the disciple. But also, we see ones written by Luke and Mark. And a little bit of story there. Luke was Paul's doctor, Paul who wrote half the New Testament, and Paul told him this story, and he took it and made an account. And then Mark's gospel was sourced by Peter. Peter, uh, the, the, the disciple or apostle. So you have four legal witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. Secondly is, a, is really for different audiences. Matthew and Mark was intended for Jews. They were wanting the Jewish people, God's covenant people, to understand why Jesus came and what he came for. But then also we see that Luke was written toward Gentiles, which makes sense because Paul was sent to the Greek world, but that John was writing for both Jews and Greeks. He was writing this much later than the other eyewitness accounts. But the third reason is they were trying to get across different points, They had different points of emphases. Uh, Luke was trying to put everything in a chronological order, so you could see kind of a timeline. Uh, Matthew and Mark are more concerned with Jesus fulfilling the prophecies to Israel as the king and the Messiah. But then John sort of buries the point of his letter later in the book. If you look at John 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In fact, if you look at John chapter 20 and John chapter 21, this is sort of a really weird little aside because there's this narrative and then John says, this is the point of everything I've been talking about. Everything I've been talking about has really been about doing two things. One is giving an answer to a question and second is giving you a glorious invitation into that answer. The question that's being asked from the book of John is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And this morning, no matter what you're coming in with, no matter where you're at in life, whether you're a follower of Jesus, or you're searching, or you're a skeptic, or you're just curious, or you're here because a friend brought you, that's a question that all of us need to answer is, who is Jesus? It may be the most important question that you and I could ask, because if Jesus is who John says he is as God and Savior, it changes everything. But also, it's the most important invitation that you could ever consider. He came to give us life. He came that we may believe in him, that we could have hope and joy and meaning. And when we think about hope and joy and meaning in life, every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, is looking for that. We're all looking for purpose and meaning in this life. We want to know that our lives matter. We want to know there's something more than just going to work nine to five every Monday. And through Friday. There's nothing more than going to class. There's something more than where we grow up and what we wear and how much money we make. And we look for this meaning and purpose in all sorts of areas in our lives. But if Jesus is God and Jesus is Savior, it means that we have hope, joy, meaning, and purpose, not just in this life, but in a life eternal. Because the life that Jesus promises is eternal life. Now, you might be tempted to say, you know, like, look, I like Jesus. He seems like a great guy. I love his teachings. I love that whole like, you know, sheep thing. He seems like a very gentle person. I I like Jesus as a good teacher. I I think Jesus could be one of many ways to God, but you can't approach Jesus like that because that's not how Jesus presents himself. Multiple times through the Gospel of John, and we will see this, Jesus says, I am God. I am God. I am Savior. I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so you have to take Jesus as he is. You can't take Jesus as something that he's not. And in fact, in 1950, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called, What Are We to Make of Jesus? And he made the same point in his book, Mere Christianity. He says that Jesus is one of three things. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's a liar, meaning that He's actively trying to lead people astray. He's a lunatic, or as C.S. Lewis puts it, he's on par with a man who believes he's a poached egg. That's a very English way to say you're crazy. Or he is exactly who he said he is. He is God and Savior. And if you notice the reactions that we're going to see through the Gospel of John, no one has a mild reaction to Jesus. They either came away hating Jesus, being afraid of Jesus, or adoring Jesus. And my hope for you as we go through the gospel of John is that you would adore Jesus, that you would love Jesus. You would see Jesus as he is and you would receive that invitation to trust him if you've not done so. So John chapter one makes three arguments that back up these claims, that Jesus is both God and Savior. So we're gonna examine and unpack those this morning. The first of those arguments is creation itself. Creation itself shows us that God is both Savior, or Jesus is both God and Savior. If you look at John 1, chapter 1, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 34 this morning. Um, It says, in the beginning. Now, those words, if you are familiar with the Bible, should kind of trigger something. You say, well, I've heard those words before. Where have I heard the words in the beginning? Well, a good place to look for the words in the beginning are at the beginning. So, at the beginning of Genesis, the exact same words are used, in the beginning." In the beginning at creation. This is intentional. John wants to clue you into who Jesus is by saying that in the beginning was the word. And we're going to see later on that the word is Jesus. That Jesus is the word. And the word, the words in the beginning has the idea of origin. So before there was a beginning, before there was anything, there was something. Before there was anything, there was this, this word, And when it refers to Jesus as the word, I don't like to use Greek words a lot. I don't like to, because I don't want to, you know, try to impress you with Greek or, you know, make you think I'm smart or something. I want to make this as simple as possible. But sometimes you just got to say the Greek word, uh, is the word logos. And the reason I use that word is because it's really kind of hard for us to fully grasp what's being said by simply translating it the word. The word logos has the sense of something like the message or the meaning and really what the way the Greeks would have understood this word is that the logos is the soul of the universe. It's it's, it's the linchpin that holds everything together. It's the essence of creation. It's the essence of existence itself. In other words, it is the point. The point of all things is the word. Therefore, the point of all things is Jesus. The Beatles long ago said all we need is love, and if Jesus is the point, all we need is Jesus. And by calling Jesus the Word, what's being said here is that the Word, Jesus, was there before creation as God. That Jesus gives everything its purpose as the one who existed before creation and over creation, who created all things. And verse 3 tells us that all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. But the word, Jesus, was the instrument of creation, bringing all things into being according to God's perfect plan, the perfect plan between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Psalm 33 tells us that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. And the way that Genesis 1 describes creation coming is out of nothing. God speaks, and all things come into being. It's this beautiful picture of a masterpiece, and, and I don't, uh, you know, I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes this in uh, in The Magician's Nephew that. Aslan, the Jesus figure, sings creation into being, and I don't know if, and it's too far for me to guess that God would have sung creation into being, but I do not believe it would be any less beautiful. God spoke creation into being through his son. Jesus was there before creation as the word, but not just that. It says at the end of verse 1 that the word was with God and the word was God. What's that mean? I'm going to tackle that sort of backwards that the Word was God, that Jesus, God the Son, is co-equal with God the Father, co-equal with God the Spirit, that everything we see was made to glorify God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, through the work of Jesus, and that everything we see and every person we know finds its purpose in relation to God. Because God was there at the beginning, because Jesus is God, then Jesus defines what a good life looks like. You, know, you and I, can, we can live in all sorts of ways that are contrary to our creator. It's, it's a little bit like a baseball bat. Um, the person who invented the baseball bat, you know, they invented it to play baseball. But you can use a baseball bat to do all sorts of stuff. You can create destruction. When I was in high school. Some people, I'm not saying I did, or maybe I did, I don't know. I'm not going to confess that right now, uh, would use it to smash mailboxes. Um, you can use a baseball bat to protect yourself. You can use your baseball bat to prop a door. But a baseball bat was created hit a baseball. In the same way, we use the life that God has given us as he's designed us for all sorts of ways contrary to his word, but make no mistake that God created us for a purpose. Jesus created us for this purpose, but also he was with God. Again in verse two, it's double down. He was in the beginning with God. So before there was anything, there was God and Jesus the Son sits distinct as part of the Trinity, part of the the three in one as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each coequally God yet one God. and what this tells us is that God was never alone that's really important for us to understand there's never been a moment even before anything was created that God was alone, and so when it says that he was with God. There's a sense of of relationship, there's a sense of of intimacy between them, and here's where we really begin to see the beauty of creation and what it means for us. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, verse 4. Verse 9, again, it says that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, meaning that every single one of us has experienced the life that God gives that he extends to us. So what is that life? It's the very breath in your lungs. It's the ability to think. It's the ability to reason. It's the ability to love and to enjoy and to create. It's the idea that you were made in the image of God. And here's where it begins to get really good is that when the, the, in him was life and life was the light of men, what this means is that God wanted to share what he had before creation with you. Think about that for a minute that the perfect love that God had between Father, Son, and Spirit, he wanted you to experience. Now, some really, really bad theology is the idea that God created you because he was lonely. God was not lonely. God didn't need an imaginary friend, okay? Like like we did when we were kids. If you're, play, if you're an only child, you know, sorry if I bring up any trauma, but you, you're playing in your room by yourself and you've got an imaginary friend. That's not what God's doing. He had existed and experienced relationship perfectly between Father, Son, and Spirit, meaning God needed nothing. God did not need to create us. He wanted to create us. And so creation was not an act of need. Creation was an act of love. An act of love where God took what was his alone, which he needed nothing from, and shared that love between Father, Son, and Spirit with us, his creation, that we could experience that same love. Meaning that all things that Jesus holds together, he does so because of God's never-ending love to share it with you. And he's so committed to this that in verse 5, even though sin and darkness have entered the world through our sin, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So creation screams that there is a God who existed before creation and stands over creation and is coming to rescue his creation. And some ways we see God's hand in the world in creation is that we live in a finely tuned universe. We live in a universe that is not random. We live in a universe that has processes and everything is, just just think about all the conditions that have to exist for the fact that you live on this earth. If we lived any close- if our earth was any closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If it was any further away, we would, we, would, uh, we would freeze to death. If the axis was off in any direction, we see God's hand in that as someone who designed it. But even the fact that you have the capacity to love, even the fact that you have the capacity to be to be creative is evidence that there's a God who created a beautiful world. And just like the the Mona Lisa eventually points you to the creator, Leonardo da Vinci, creation points to our creator, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We see evidence for Jesus as God and Savior through creation. The second is through a key witness. There's a key witness in this passage that helps us understand. I don't know if you, if you like courtroom dramas like I do. Uh, I love Law and & Order and CSI and all these, you know, the firm, like anything, any, I love those. They're not very realistic, but one of the most unrealistic things that happens in almost every episode is there's this toss-up between the prosecution and the defense, and everything's getting tense, and it's like, who's going to win the case? And all of a sudden, the prosecutor calls in the key witness. And the key witness comes in and drops the microphone and the case is closed. That's what we see here with John. And in verse six, there's sort of this weird interruption uh, where we're introduced to a guy named John. This is a different John than the writer of John. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist uh, is, is being introduced here. And you might be asking the question, who is John the Baptist? And if you jump down to verse 19, that's the same question that the religious leaders were asking. Who is this guy? We see the the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem come. It's a little bit like when the district manager comes to your office wondering why sales are down, like they're sending in the bad guys. They go, what's going on with John? John came from a good family. He came from a priestly family. And if you know anything about John, he had taken this vow where he's living out in the middle of the desert with long hair and nails, camel skin, eating bugs, and he's dunking people in water. It's weird. I agree. They want to know what's going on with him. Who exactly are you? And they come asking the same question we are in verse 19 Who are you? And in verse 20, John the Baptist he he answers, he makes in such clear terms who he is. He says, he confessed, a weird wording, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I can tell you who I'm definitely not. I'm not the promised one. I'm not the savior. I'm not the one you've been waiting for. I'm not the light. But they're looking at this thinking, well, you must be somebody important because everybody keeps coming out to you. Everybody keeps coming to you and they're being baptized by you and droves. People from every walk of life are coming. What exactly is going on here? So they ask him in verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? Elijah was a prophet of old who it was believed would return before the Messiah came, Malachi 4. Behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes whenever the savior would come and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction they, they're like maybe you're maybe you're Elijah he says no okay well then maybe you're the prophet that Moses had talked about a man who would come like him who would tell the people how they should live and he says i am not him either And while they're thinking about this, they're like, okay, well, while we're at it, if you're neither one of those people, who in the world gave you authority to baptize all these people? If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, why do you get to do this? It's like trying to do anything in the city of Boston. It takes seven permits to do it. He didn't have the proper permitting to be baptizing people. And in verse 23, John the Baptist gives his answer. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not a prophet. I'm a voice. I'm a witness. And this gives some understanding to what John the evangelist or John the writer is saying in verse 7 when he said he, John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That passage in verse 23 is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, about a day when a Messiah or a Savior would come and rescue Israel. And he would come and he was going to make the path straight by going and removing all the rocks and all the stumps and all the impediments in the way to make sure that the king could easily get to Jerusalem. And what's beautiful about that is if you begin to look at Isaiah 40 all the way to the end of the chapter, you begin to see the story of salvation, Because in chapters 52 and 53, you see of a suffering servant who would come and take away sins by his stripes. In chapter 65 through 66, you see of a new heaven and a new earth that would come down and make all things new. And what John is saying is, is I am bringing that day as a witness, as a voice, as a forerunner who's laying the groundwork for one who is greater than me. And his baptism shows this. You see this in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. That my baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It's an outward picture of what Jesus is going to do in verse 33, where it says that he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. One who baptizes with something that's going to change your heart. One who baptizes with something that's going to make you new. And this is what happens in the picture of what we do through baptism. We got to celebrate baptism a couple of weeks ago, hopefully going to get to celebrate it again in a couple of weeks, which is amazing. It's an outward symbol of what Christ does in our hearts. It's a, it's a washing away of sin. It's a forgiveness of sin that Jesus actually does for us. It points to something greater, and it points to something that's so much better than just the best among a bunch of good options, Jesus is on a whole other level, and we see this in verse 27, the one who stands among them that they did not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That's a crazy statement. The the sandals are really important there because when a a rabbi or a teacher would call a student in the Jewish world, that student who was there to learn the Jewish law and learn what it meant to follow and be a teacher – Basically became a servant. He he became not just a student, but a servant. And he did whatever he was told. He had to carry bags, he had to send emails, he had to do whatever he was asked. He had to do it. Except one thing. It was untie the sandals of his rabbi. Because that was seen as a s as a task that was so demeaning, it may have been the most demeaning task that a servant could have been asked to do for his master, because Feet were gross. If you're a person who doesn't like feet now, imagine living in a world where you're wearing sandals and there's dung on the ground and there's dirt and there's mud and there's no place to wash up. Imagine having to stoop down and untie the, the, the strings of your master's sandal. What John is saying is, is that the lowliest act of an earthly servant, I am not worthy to perform for him. That is crazy humility but it's a good kind of humility. It's not the kind of humility that makes you small. It's the type of humility that makes you come alive. Tim Keller says that there are two different ways you can say it. You can say I'm unworthy and mean I despise and dislike myself. Or you can say I am unworthy and mean I am freed from and I forget myself. The one is destructive. The other is healthy Christian humility. He sees Jesus as greater and this is how he knew if you look at verses 29 through 34 he said that he sees Jesus coming toward him and he says behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he knew it was him and he says he did not know him not that he had never met him they were actually cousins but it dawned on him who exactly Jesus was when I was in college, uh, I went to Auburn University my freshman year, and I became friends with this guy, and we, were, we hung out all the time. We were, we were buddies and all this. And then one day, I realized that his granddad owned Chick-fil-A, and we had a completely new relationship. Uh, I got a lot more free Chick-fil-A after that. I related to him differently. I, I didn't truly know him until I knew this important fact about him. In the same way, John sees Jesus for who he is, And he knows that as the spirit landed on him like a dove and stayed there, the way he related to him had to change. And one of the greatest evidences for Jesus is people who've been changed by Jesus. What happens is, is we see him for who he is and we see ourselves in light of him, that he is that great, that he is that worthy, and that that is where life is found. So, An argument is made because of a key witness, but most importantly, the argument is made because of the person of Jesus. The most compelling piece of evidence for Jesus being God and Savior is right in the middle of the text in verse 9 through 14. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That the true light is not a philosophy. That the true light is not a theory. That the true light is not a political ideology or a list of rules that you need to keep. That the true light is a person. The greatest evidence we have that, God has, that Jesus is God is that God became flesh. He became a real-life, breathing, kicking, needy baby born in the first century who had a gender, culture, and family. Jackie O'Perry says that God wrapped himself in human flesh, therefore God became just as needy as we are, just as dependent as we are that Jesus was a real flesh and blood person is undeniable historically. You can't deny that Jesus existed. There is as much, if not more, evidence that Jesus existed than any of the Caesars. There's closer manuscript evidence that Jesus existed than anyone in human history. There's more evidence that he existed than Alexander the Great and Socrates. Jesus took on flesh. But the central claim of this is that it goes further in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God did not just come down, but he took on a body and lived our experience. He he dwelt or tabernacled among us. This is the picture of, of the tent of meeting in the Old Testament where people would meet and see the glory of God. And we see this at the end of verse 14, that we have seen his glory. glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's both fierce and forgiving, merciful and just, loving and sacrificial, humble and powerful. And we see Jesus taking this on And Hebrews 2 verse 17 helps us see why Jesus did this for us. As the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or payment for the sins of the people. He came to experience everything that you've experienced. There is nothing you have experienced that Jesus has not experienced. The joys, the losses, the suffering, death. Jesus can empathize. We have a high priest who's not far off and distant, we have someone who knows your experience and stepped into it but he also came to rescue you and save you from it. There's a difference between yelling into a burning house that someone should go and get free and, there's a, and versus someone stepping into the house and taking you out. Jesus ran into the burning house. He stooped low. He got among us to rescue us and pay for our sins. And he did this so that you could receive his grace. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Now what exactly does that phrase mean, grace upon grace? Does that just mean like lots of grace, like more grace, give me more grace? It's actually interesting if you look at the context of verse 17. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That the law was grace. The law was gracious, but the law was only a placeholder. It was meant to show you God's holy standard and how you and I fail to meet it. But here Jesus comes with grace on top of that grace to give you better grace. The one that makes all the promises of people who are obedient true for you on your behalf, that Jesus came to do what you could not do, that you could trust in his better grace through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection for you. And here's where we see the invitation. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To trust Jesus? in Jesus. Verse 12 tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The way that you receive this is by believing in Jesus's name. Someone's name is, 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 means their whole person, their whole being, everything about them. It means that you love Jesus with no ifs or buts. You receive Jesus as he is. Don't be like the person who says, oh, man, I love the beach. I'm a beach person. I love the beach. Then you say, well, do you like sand? And they're like, no. Well, do you like water? Well, no. Do you like hauling things to the beach? Well, well, you're you're not a beach person. You don't love the beach. In the same way, Israel said, we want a Messiah. We want a Savior to come. Lord, come save us. Except we don't want you as you are. It says in verses 10 and 11 that his own people rejected Him, that they did not receive Him. They wanted a Savior, but they wanted a Savior in their image. They wanted a Savior who would give them political power. They wanted a Savior who would, would free them from, from their earthly problems. And you and I can be no different, that we want Jesus, but only if He doesn't ask me to change. I want Jesus, but if it, only if it doesn't cost me I want Jesus if if I can still be comfortable. But there's a promise here that if you're willing to receive Jesus as he is, if you're willing to receive Jesus as God, you're willing to receive Jesus as Savior, you're willing to receive Jesus as Lord, you can have him. You can enjoy him. You can know him. And verse 13 tells us that the children of God are not those who are born into it. You not have to be born into the right family or the right country or the the right church. It's not... Of blood. It's it's not a certain race or ethnicity, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man. It's not how hard you try, but it's simply of God by His grace. You can be a part of Jesus' family by grace alone. Let's pray.